Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 177. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content and the soothing sounds of the one and only John White, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Great, Nick. Hey, uh, this episode, we are going to be kicking off another two-parter, right? A discussion with Stephanie Wong, the head of developer engagement at Google Cloud. Uh, I really thought that this was like a, a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I was shocked that it was in two parts. Yeah, that, that hardly ever happens with us. Hardly ever happens. Maybe only every time. What... I think would be interesting to listen for is Stephanie's interest and background, like what she was expecting her career to be and what she was preparing for in college and how that kind of uh, contrasted with what she's actually doing today. Just a little, a little tidbit. Listen for that. Anything uh, from you, Nick, like things that you wanted to, uh, our listeners to pay attention to? I would say listen for the details on the internships she did. I found those completely fascinating and interesting. Yeah, yeah, and how that ended up like maybe helping out with the job that she does today. I I also wanted to say at a certain point in time she talks about saying no to a job offer from her dream company and the the context of that was a fascinating story. Yeah, a very good one that I won't soon forget. And interestingly enough, you'll hear experience in pre-sales and post-sales. That's very true. I want to talk more about it, but I'd prefer that people actually get to listen to that content directly from Stephanie. So without further ado, let's get to part one with Stephanie Wong. Stephanie Wong, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey podcast. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us uh, what it is that you do today, who you work for? Yeah, sure. So what is it that I do? I currently work at Google Cloud as their first head of developer engagement. Um, if you have no idea what that is, I'm sure we'll go into that in just a moment. But essentially, I am primarily a content creator and an engineer. Uh, I'm also first-generation Asian-American based out of San Francisco area. And throughout my time at Google, I have grown to having this audience of enterprise developers, IT executives, um, data scientists, startup founders, and other technical practitioners. And so far in the last four years, I've been able to write and produce and host over 450 videos, articles, podcasts, and tutorials, and have uh, amounted to at least 10 million views at this point. But, you know, just outside of the numbers, um, I really enjoy tapping into the technical community with refreshing takes about our product launches 
in a way that dismantles the ego in tech and helps to educate engineers in new ways. Awesome. We don't traditionally do this on the um, Nerd Journey podcast, but I've heard you guys do it. So we're going to talk about the one cool thing. And my uh, actual two cool things would be the Google Cloud Tech YouTube channel and the Google Cloud podcast. We'll put the links in the show notes. It's really interesting to see how you guys do technical content and uh, kind of, you know, run through things from beginner to advanced level and to see how you partition out, like, uh, even the audiences, um, you know, be it for, you know, families of products, um, a practitioner, you know, beginning practitioner, somebody who's just, you know, getting their feet wet all the way out to advanced practitioner. Pretty cool stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I took over the podcast last year and it's been my own little nerd journey on its own um, getting used to hosting and uh, really having to really just immerse myself in all cloud topics and get used to talking about every topic at a certain depth and comfortably um, so it's just been a really huge honor to be able to do that and I've had a lot of fun it's also just helped boost my confidence and my own career path in cloud yeah it's it's definitely something we're gonna ask about because uh... I mean, I know Nick and I both had this issue, right? Being um, in sales engineering, you know, kind of the the front line, the first person who gets asked uh, any technical questions by customers. There's uh, just a huge portfolio of products and technologies and details that you can get immersed in. So things that we'll we'll get into is is how you keep up to date. We'll get there. We'll get there. Maybe first uh, I can ask you how you got into tech. I mean, I'm not sure how far back that goes. You know, we've heard uh, people talk about their first computers, you know, in grade school or middle school, high school. How about you? What was your, your entrance? Well, I think it's safe to say that I have had a somewhat unconventional path into both engineering and technical content creation. I think unlike many of the engineers around me in cloud, I didn't graduate with a computer science degree, but I did graduate with a different kind of CS degree, which is communication studies. Um, so it's very different. And I also minored in digital humanities. That being said, I've always had this deep passion for tech and entertainment, like video production. So in school, I tried to merge those two passions by studying interpersonal and, and, and kind of broad-based communication like entertainment and doing a minor that allowed me to dive into research around tech's impact on society and literature and things like that. And so when I entered the job market, I really didn't expect to get a job in cloud. I, I almost went into entertainment doing internships around that field, only to realize that it was a really hard field to really just, I would say, advance in. Uh, it wasn't as lucrative in the beginning as a early 20-year-old. 20, 20 and so I sort of just landed in tech by accident because of my college and the companies that were recruiting at the time. Can you just share one of the internship experiences, Stephanie? Because, I mean, I read your profile. I needed, you were involved in some really cool studies about social media trends and things like that. Could you share that with the listeners? Sure. So that was a part of my minor. And that's honestly how I got exposed to tech, which gave me the edge I needed to get hired in my first job at Oracle. That wasn't my intention, however. I joined that minor because I wasn't particularly interested in completely committing to 
CS or engineering, but I did want to become exposed to tech because I had a passion for consumer technology. So when I found out that the first year digital humanities was being offered at UCLA, I jumped at the opportunity. It gave me a chance to study things like social media analytics or um, content management systems, information systems, basics around networking. I got to visit a data center and really understand the broad concepts of technology and more importantly, how they touched our lives. And I was able to do research that way. So that was how I dipped my toes, if you will. And the social media analytics apprenticeships that I did were related to events like the Boston bombings that happened around that time and other current events like the Kenyan presidential elections of 2013. And so my group and I and some graduate students and professors were doing research around whether or not data that we could collect from social media could be analyzed to compare it to how news outlets were covering the same events and how they could incite violent or peacemaking speech. So that was the idea behind it. That's fascinating. I don't know if you've noticed this, but this was something that I noticed coming from Southern California to Northern California, but they're both company towns. Southern California, I noticed, has access to and, you know, the um, the entertainment industry and everything or a large majority of what goes on there is touched by that. And then when I moved to Northern California to work in the technical industry in software, like I noticed, oh, wait, you know, there isn't that anymore. Like there aren't people who are writing scripts as much in the Bay Area, you know, for television, for for film, for commercials, you know, for, for all of those things that I, I don't know, that was, you know, just something that I noticed. I wondered if you had noticed the same thing. Yeah. Now looking back on it, it's very apparent. Um, it's kind of funny because when I did the internships, uh, maybe I can describe them a little bit more, but the first internship I did was actually in San Francisco. It was for a company called LiveFire, and they were a comment management system or platform used on blogs. And um, that was interesting. I got to get exposed a little bit more to tech startup culture, and I was a community manager. So I would try to build communities for that product online. Uh, it's a little bit of a marketing role. And then when I went back to LA the next summer or fall semester, I interned at a company called D Studio. It was a dance studio sponsored by YouTube because I'm also a hip hop dancer. So it was a great way to be in the presence of really cool dancers that I looked up to and also get to do things like production uh, assisting on set and do some basic research for them to build a repository of dancers. And then the next year I interned at Warner Brother Records and that's the music industry. And I was doing marketing and sales for them, doing very basic research. Um, I did a marketing campaign for one of their artists at the time and got exposed to that industry as well. So yeah, you're right. It was it was a good juxtaposition of seeing tech startup culture in San Francisco and entertainment, only to realize that in the entertainment industry, I remember I was walking around downtown Los Angeles, uh, helping being a PA, working for free, not getting paid for any of these internships, lugging around this like wagon in my, you know, like maxi skirt, trying to look good for work and also like lugging around big lights and water for the crew. And there was this moment where I was walking down the street just thinking, I don't know if I really want to do this as my first job and like not really get paid for it at all. So that kind of gave me a little bit of a push to see what else was out there. And ultimately I ended up going to every single, every single career fair that UCLA had to offer and found out that Oracle was 
recruiting for sales and sales engineers. At the time, I had no idea what sales engineering was, nor what Oracle was, to be quite frank. But I knew that my parents were excited about the prospect of me working at a very stable tech company that was recognized in the Bay Area. So when I got the job, I was like, this is great. They're offering training for six weeks. And my parents had underscored the importance of having a good foundation of training, no matter what industry you're going to. So I said yes to that. And that was when I got swept up into the world of cloud technologies later on, a couple of years into the job. However, I always had this sense that I wanted to rekindle that passion that I had for entertainment, but there was no clear path for me to be able to do that once I was already wrapped up in the flurry of working a nine to five job in Silicon Valley. It's interesting that you were not a computer science major, but there was still like active recruiting for roles in a software company. It just happened to be in sales and sales engineering. I think that Oracle is fairly famous for having that type of program, like having very large like class of programs. Yeah, that was the one I was part of. <laughs> yeah, in big cities, like um, maybe also the yield isn't necessarily that large. Like uh, just because you get recruited and get hired doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be working there five years later. They are pretty good at that and doing the training. It's a pretty cool um, opportunity. I was going to say that sounds similar to the VMware Academy program where they recruit college students and teach them about the software and how to be solution engineers. Exactly. I still think Oracle and I'm grateful for the opportunity because that is what really set me off on a great path in my career and ultimately what gave me the edge I needed to get hired by Google Cloud, which I had attempted multiple times throughout my time uh, right after school. Just going back to the program real quick. Uh, I mentioned that I didn't have any conception of what cloud technology was, and I had no understanding of what sales engineering was. But Oracle had given me both a basic understanding of how to do sales engineering, as well as enterprise technology. As you know, they're a huge you know, company that started with database management systems, databases, relational databases. Then they acquired tons of SaaS companies, so they had ERP systems, you name it, right? So I got exposed to all of that, to PaaS, IaaS, Platform as a Service. I also will say that I did get lucky when I got hired in 2014 because that was when they were really ramping up their hiring for cloud. And that was why they were doing all these class of programs. They wanted to hire like a big sales machine. And luckily they also had sales engineering, which I thought was a better fit for what I wanted to do. Um, and so after a year and a half of me on the sales engineering team for BI and analytics, which actually fit really well with my DH experience as a for my minor digital humanities yeah and bi is business intelligence right yes sorry i should remember not to use so much <laughs> jargon but yes i went into analytics because it it was fitting for my apprenticeships that i did and digital humanities and after a year and a half i could sense that cloud technology was really starting to be a market mover and there was a lot of activity happening around VMs, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service. So Oracle started to create the first customer success management team for database as a service products and infrastructure as a service. I ended up interviewing and pivoting to that role 
so that I could get more hands-on implementation and onboarding experience with those customers and gain a little bit sharper of a skill set there. Oh, that's interesting. So you made a transition from sales engineering to customer success and that those roles are on two different sides of the divide that we kind of think of as the sale, right? Sales engineering spans a lot of activities that happen before the sale and then customer success spans mostly activities that happen after the sale to get, you know, okay, the product or service has been purchased or been committed to now what happens to for that customer to actually be successful on that platform, consuming those services, whatever. Do I have that basically right? That's correct, yeah. At Oracle, the customer success management team was the post-sales team. You were responsible for being the point of contact for a customer when they have purchased a service. And so we did a lot of onboarding, but we also handled helping implement their solutions and getting consumption to start happening because that was important for revenue recognition for the company as well. We also help with support issues, escalations, making sure that technical issues were resolved. But we also ended up being responsible for upselling a bit too, because we managed the relationship on that end as well. So we were responsible for making sure that not only did they consume their metered services in the cloud, but that they were expanding their utilization or the amount of products being used. I, I don't think that it's uh, giving away any kind of trade secret to say that companies are constantly looking for, for new services to, to sell to their customers, right? It's like, uh, that's, you know, goes back as far as like the, uh, the stuff that you could buy in the grocery store while you're waiting to check out. It's like, oh, maybe I do need a candy bar or a protein bar or a protein shake or a cold drink, all those types of things. That's, you know, fascinating to hear that you made that jump. Is there a, a contrast in skills that are required there, or are they very similar types of skills? There is definitely a contrast in skills. I would say being on the CSM team, you are required to manage a relationship that's more long-term because you want to see the success of the customer. You're not just going to you know, sell the product and pass it off to the team. You are that team. So there is a little bit more of that longevity of relationship, as well as real hands-on implementation experience, instead of just talking about how the solution will theoretically work or doing a POC, you really sit on calls and make sure that things are up and running smoothly. And if something doesn't, then you're the first person that they're going to talk to in some ways, right? You really have that sense of uh, accountability in that way. And for me, because the topic set was a little bit different than the previous team I was at, for sales engineering, I had to learn a new set of skills related to uh, implementing databases. And sometimes they had to be replicated across regions. And at the time, the platform was a little bit more nascent as well. So some of those features were still being built out. I also had to learn how to spin up VMs and you know do the whole SSH key, private key, passing off and all that. So these were new skills that I really ha didn't have any background on. So it was really good for me to learn as I wanted to transition to a different company. That's interesting. I, what I have seen, Stephanie, across the industry is in some cases, customer success is actually not a technical role, but still a relationship role that supports consumption or, you know, let us tell you about something you own that you're not using and help you adopt it. 
I think it's interesting that you were attracted to the deeper tech. Some some people, as they mature, they, they decide, well, I'm going to go and be less technical or I'm going to be more technical. And it sounds like the more technical decision on your part was because you like to learn so much. Yeah, I think it was definitely that. That being said, I was still intimidated at the idea of becoming more technical because I lacked that traditional computer science engineering background. I think throughout my career, I can easily say that I know how to toe the line to a point that I know I'll be comfortable and, and happy. I'm not the strongest software engineer out there, nor do I want to be, but I want to be able to understand things at a level that I can speak somebody else's language and better yet teach them and distill these complex concepts in a way that'll help them. So that's that's how I frame, and I've come to realize that that is, that is my sweet spot. And, I, and I'm like, okay with that. It's interesting that you mention being non-traditional, you know, and going into sales engineering and customer success. I don't know that computer science is the traditional background, <laughs> uh, to be honest. You know, like computer science is a traditional background to get into software development. But every time I talk to somebody who's in sales engineering or even on the implementation side, most of the background is from the ranks of IT and the IT, you know, information technology people, you know, there is not a traditional way to get into that. It's almost like, you know, you trip and, and fall into it. Nick, what was your, your background? High school math teacher. Right. And, <laughs> yeah, very different. And my degree was like a computational economics degree. It's interesting. Like I, I want to ask a little bit more about that digital humanities, you know, minor and communications major, because maybe that is a more appropriate background to do what it is that we do. That's actually such a good point looking back on it, because when I first read the job description for sales engineering, I was like, oh, that sounds kind of in line with my degree because it involves business communication and a little bit of the technical consulting too. So I was like, okay, this could work. I didn't, I didn't really know until I got into the job. I still had to learn everything pretty much. But you're right. Like I think a lot of the people in the class of program came from various backgrounds like economics. Some even did like poli sci and film, but they also had a minor in something like digital humanities. But there were a number of people who did engineering electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, things that weren't even computer science. I think that I had mistaken that as being more technical than me in a way that would propel them forward in this industry. And actually, it, it, that's not necessarily true because they still had to learn a totally new set of skills just as I had to. So I, I think you're right. I think that speaks to the idea that you should never let stereotypes sway your perception of the direction that you should take. And that's only become something that I have continued to really hammer down on as I've continued to grow my career. Stereotypes from the perspective of you need a specific background and experience to be in this job, in this industry? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's limitations and blind, like a set of blinders that we put on ourselves, right? The worst kind of uh, limitations. Yeah. I mean, the same thing happened to me when I transitioned to DevRel because in DevRel, there is a huge population of people in DevRel that really believe that you should be a strong software engineer. And to be fair, that is true. 
but that is not the only way that you can de get into DevRel as I am an example of. So I will say that when it came to my career in DevRel, me having an unconventional background is twice as true as sales engineering, at least. Interesting. And did that transition happen at Oracle? No, that didn't happen until a, a year and a half or, or so after joining Google Cloud. So you made that transition from Oracle to Google Cloud, also in sales engineering, if I understand correctly. Yeah. So I can talk a little bit about how that happened because it's kind of an interesting story <laughs> of how I got my job at Google Cloud. So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people were leaving Oracle at the time to pursue their own dreams of traveling or just switching to a different job. Some went to medical school because they were just at Oracle as like sort of this gap year and wanted to work. I actually decided that I wanted to travel too. <laughs> I saw people doing it. I was like, I might as well do it too. I'm like young still. And so I was fully prepared to just quit with no direct plan. And I find out, uh, I get tapped on the shoulder actually from Google Cloud saying that they're hiring for sales reps. And I knew that I didn't really want to do that particular role. I almost said no, but then I decided maybe I should just say yes and go through the interview process to learn simply for that. And if I get an offer, I'll decide then, but let me just try it because it is Google. I don't want to say no. I, I've always wanted to work there. And also to provide some background, I had applied two or three times previously for various positions like an ads sales specialist and uh, a receptionist at one point just to see if I could get my foot in the door and then pivot. So that's one of the reasons why I took the interview for the sales rep for Google Cloud. So I did the full interview process, did all the interviews, and I got the offer, but it wasn't as compelling as I wanted it to be compared to what I was making at Oracle. So I ended up saying no, which is a very difficult decision. And I talked to a lot of people about it. My dad was like, you should definitely take it. And my mom was like, no, if it doesn't feel right, you shouldn't. So I ended up following my intuition and said no. So I continued my plans to go travel and three months later, um, right before I was about to quit or maybe two months later, Google Cloud taps me on the shoulder again and says, hey, we actually have a sales engineering position opening up. And that seems like something that's more in line with what you're doing. And you mentioned that you would be more excited about that. So I was like, great, do I have to do all the interviews again? And they actually said, well, you did half of them, which are the interviews for the sales reposition. So we'll keep those notes because it was recent but you still need to do the technical role-related knowledge interview as well as the presentation uh, and maybe one other. So I was like, great, that wasn't a waste of time after all. So I learned and I was able to use those. I ended up going through that second round of interviews and prepared the most I ever have for any interview process so far. I was very intimidated, but I, I got the job and did the demo and presentation. And so I ended up traveling for only a month versus my, the longer amount of time I wanted to and started in July of 2017. And that's when I started as a sales engineer or customer engineer at Google Cloud. If you said it before, I missed it, but can you tell us what it was about Google, the company that attracted you to pursue it over such a long period of time? Great question. I knew that Google was known for having a very forward-looking, great culture. And I think after, after having worked at Oracle, I looked up to that and wanted to experience that work culture of being at not only a very innovative company, but one that really valued work-life balance, great people, you know, less red tape. That was probably the biggest reason I wanted to join, obviously the prestigiousness of the company as well. Um, so that's why I was like, okay, let's just keep trying. 
Uh, this is one of my dream companies and whatever happens, happens. So that was, that was the main reason. We've had and talked to people who, you know, they wanted to work for a specific company and they kept trying and trying and trying until they got in. It's always interesting to hear what the reasons behind the the desire to be at a specific place are. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I will say though that I really had to make sure that if I didn't get the job, I was going to be fine. So I did tell myself, Google is not the only innovative, great cultured company in the world. If you don't get it, it's fine. And the reason why I told myself that many times is because after school, I also thought maybe as a next step, I should follow what others are doing, like applying to grad school. That seemed like a very logical next step to get more education. So I applied to Stanford knowing that that was also my dr a dream school of mine that I never got into. So I started looking at all their programs and applying to anything that seemed fitting remotely. And one of them was digital journalism. So I started doing the GRE. I wrote my personal statement, taking all my weekends to do all of this. And in the midst of writing the personal statement, I realized that I wasn't passionate about the topic and I was doing it for completely the wrong reasons, being that I only wanted to apply to Stanford for the sake of applying to Stanford and getting the prestigiousness on my resume and experiencing all of that. So it was really hard decision, but I decided to drop out of that and follow my intuition and just say, hey, that's not, I'm not doing it for the right reasons. Let me revisit this later. So when it came to Google, when I got those opportunities to interview, I did it because it was a great challenge and it was on my doorstep. But I also reminded myself that if I didn't get in, it's not the end of the world. There are plenty of great companies out there. And if it's not a good fit, then it just wasn't meant to be. It takes a lot of wherewithal to say no to your dream company. I, I admire you for that because not everybody would. Yeah, that was a really difficult decision because I had tried before, right? I think one of the biggest reasons why I decided to turn it down was because I realized that if I said yes and went down that pathway, it would be hard for me to go back to a technical role. Then if I just waited a little bit longer and got more experience, because at the time I realized I had worked at Oracle for three years and Google kept saying no the first year and it said no the second year. And all of a sudden when I gained enough experience, they were knocking on my door to, to see if I was interested. So I was like, if I just continue that pattern, only time will tell that the right opportunities will come when you gain the right experience. So I had to trust in my intuition that if I continue learning and focusing on my learning as opposed to saying yes to the first thing that falls in your lap, then things will fall in line. And, and it did just a couple months later. That's really interesting. It's also, you know, a couple different things there, you know, jumped out at me, what you said, doing things for the right reasons, I think. And then this idea that earlier on, you were interested in getting in any way you could, and then, hey, I can pivot afterwards. I think maybe something happens when you work in the industry, and you start to understand the roles that you're getting hired for, that you realize, oh, that's not something that's going to make me happy. And doing that for a year or two or three and then pivoting might be worse than waiting and getting in for the right role. I, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but, um, you know, that was kind of the pattern that clicked in my brain. Yeah. I think the takeaway for the Stanford example is when you feel that something in your heart isn't sitting right, then it probably isn't. And the people who are evaluating you are most likely going to smell that. <laughs> They're going to sniff that out, right? 
And even if you did get into it, you might not be happy if you already feel like it's not a good fit. So that was the takeaway there, like following your intuitions when things don't feel right, following instead the things that excite and challenge you in some way. So that was my pivot into cloud computing and joining the CSM team. Now, fast forward, the takeaway from the Google Cloud turndown and then the subsequent next position I took was, again, if something doesn't feel right in terms of how it might sway your direction, consider all factors and talk to people, I would say. I mean, the pay thing was one huge component of it, as well as the role and the fact that I wanted to travel. So there's just a lot of things, right? A lot of things need to come into the picture for me to say yes. And so it just didn't feel right. I said no and decided that if I had already gained some more experience in CSM, in cloud tech, I'm sure something will come up soon. So it's very situational. I would say that you probably have to take into consideration many, many factors, not just one. Could I ask about that um, process of writing the personal statement? Would it be accurate or or true to say something along the lines of writing that personal statement revealed to you that the type of statement that would you would need to write to move forward with the process of grad school was kind of in conflict with how you actually felt. Yeah, absolutely. It was almost an experiment for myself. So I'm almost grateful that I attempted that. And it wasn't the first time that I attempted something similar because in the last year of my college, I also attempted to apply to Harvard Business School through the 2 plus 2 program where you you kind of get your MBA in two years, right? Um, and I didn't make it, but that was sort of just a Hail Mary attempt last minute for me. So, you know, it's not the first time that I've tried to shoot my shot, but it was a good experience for me to realize that it wasn't fitting because when I was writing it, it was like grinding my teeth a bit. You know, it was like, I don't feel this is authentic. I feel like I'm really pushing myself here and trying to make this work and talk genuinely about how much I have a passion for digital journalism. And it also made me realize that I didn't have the right experience to speak to uh, or the right portfolio, right? That's why it was a good exercise for me to come to that conclusion. Was it also an analogous situation when the sales position came up at Google Cloud? Maybe you wouldn't need to write a personal statement you know, maybe that's not necessary, but there's almost like a shadow of personal statement that you need to come up with to say, this is, you know, the right move for both me and for you as a company to hire me to do this. And that might not have been, you know, that you might've like read a conflict in there between, Hey, I'm a hundred percent into this role and, uh, how you actually felt. Yeah. I mean, I think every interview process, whether it's a Google or a not, is a good exercise for you to be able to interview the company back and make sure that it's a good fit for you. So I think in a sense, I learned that I could speak to being a great sales rep, but I I probably could be in that role successfully if I wanted to say yes. But with the people I spoke to and with the amount of time I spent with them, it, it did, maybe it wasn't the direction I wanted to go. Especially at that point in my career, I had gained three years of being a sales engineer. So it wasn't like I was just out of school. And I, you know, so I kind of had a better feeling of my interests within the industry. So here's a follow on to, to what you just said. 
what is the reasoning behind going from customer success back to sales engineering? Because you're you're walking from one side of the fence back to the other. It's, some people might consider that a an odd move. Yeah. Well, mainly, I would say it's because I wanted to work at Google. And I did have enough experience for that role. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And to be fair, the CSM role was very similar to sales engineering in many ways. Working with customers, helping consult on architectural decisions, and and really um, building out solutions for them as well. So I thought they were, they had a lot of transferable skills between each role. Um, so for me, it didn't feel too much like I was pivoting too much or too drastically. And with the motivation of wanting to work at the company, that was enough to get me to, you know, pursue that role. That makes sense. I think some people, maybe I didn't say it right, but I think some people have a certain level of comfort on being on a certain side of the fence pre-post sales. That's a good point. I know that when I applied to Google Cloud, the role that I was applying to would have been a part of a team where I knew a couple people. And so they had told me, you know, this is a great team. We're all very close and we don't have a quota by individual. We have a quota for the whole team and it's not really a hard quota. It's like a shared goal. And our commission structure is different. So you're not getting paid commensurate to the amount of dollars that you're bringing in per se. It's more of like a, a team goal. So that helped me frame, you know, what kind of environment I would be working in. And I was very lucky to be able to leverage some of the relationships I already had on that team. Yeah, that's an important one. Having relationships with the team, knowing it's a great team before you even step into it. Yeah, that's that's like another key to success, I would say, is leveraging relationships before you join a company. I mean, of course, right? Like easier said than done, but um, it is powerful if you have it available to you. I have to say that people have contacted me out of the blue to ask about Google Cloud, you know, and maybe that's just because of this podcast. So, you know, I've definitely said, you know, please do that, right? But um, that doesn't mean that everybody who's interested does do that. So, you know, it is fortunate when you know people, but it's also not impossible to work around that. So that is, it's cool that you had that situation. Uh, the kind of question that I had or observation maybe is about that um, working on both sides of, you know, the sales line, right? Pre-sales versus post-sales. Maybe that is another blinder that people put on themselves. It's like, oh, I'm really good at post-sales, so I can't be good at pre-sales. I'm really good at pre-sales, so I, you know, can't be good at post-sales. Unfortunately, I don't have really a question there, but uh, <laughs> just an observation. Yeah, it's the John I, White I observation so. strategy. <laughs> I think it's definitely true in some cases because some people can shy away from wanting to be in pre-sales because they know that to be in pre-sales, you might want to be motivated by, you know, competition or, you know, really wanting to work in that environment, wanting to drive business goals. But in both of the teams that I was on, both pre-sales and post-sales, I didn't have that quota stress-inducing environment. So it really kind of depends on the team that you're in. So to each their own based on their experience. Um, but I know that when I joined Google Cloud, I wasn't aware of the post-sales team. I didn't know what they were like. 
So I just had an idea of what the, the pre-sales team was like. It seems great. I had friends on it already. You know, it did meet expectations for that first year. However, after the first year, I did feel that I might be plateauing on the team. And that's when I started to consider other options at Google. Interesting. And so that led to this exploration of uh, developer relations or developer advocacy? By accident. Yes. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Never in a million years would I ever think that I would join DevRel because again, I knew that it was very technical. It was part of our engineering. Would have never considered it as an option. However, within the first three months of me joining Google Cloud, I met another customer engineer who wanted to make YouTube videos for fun. And so I was like, ding, ding, ding. That sounds great. That's exactly what I've always wanted to do in tech. And I never knew how because I... I had a passion for technology and media, as you know from my previous experience, and I was too scared to do my own YouTube channel. <laughs> and so when he was like, yeah, like, what if, why don't we do it together? I was like, yes, this is exactly the kind of push I needed, having a partner and a, uh, someone to do this all with. So that was great. We ended up filming on like very scrappy webcams and running around to just whatever conference rooms were available, even game rooms, and we would create demos, we would interview folks. Um, we would just talk about anything and post it on our own YouTube channel called GCP Live. And so that was a really great way for me to get that exposure, but with zero expectations, right? We, I didn't think it would lead to anything. Through that, I ended up getting reached out to, both him and I got reached out to by my current manager, actually, in DevRel, because he also was creating videos for DevRel and had access to budget. <laughs> He had access to <laughs> the money and a studio and asked if we wanted to create some content in that studio. So we decided that it was a great idea and having access to a studio was so exciting to me. It's what I always wanted. We ended up doing that. And interestingly, I was able to position it as a good artifact for Perf on my customer engineering team, which wasn't the case for other people that were doing videos with us. Um, and so I was able to actually spin it in a way that got me some brownie points for customer engineering as well. Nice. Um, yeah. Because you, you have to show evidence of the impact you're making for further promotion in a number of different career ladders across a technology company like a Google or VMware or other. And those metrics are, are powerful in helping you step up to that next level. I assume that's what you mean but please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I think that because it's not really directly related to business driving activity, some people who were also collaborating with us on videos weren't able to get credit for it, and they were asked to stop doing videos on the side, even if it was oh. like a 20% thing outside of your day-to-day. -day. Luckily, I was on a team that had this different structure, and I was able to spin it in a way that I could say, hey, I helped charter this initiative to showcase the power of Google technology to new untapped audiences online. And we've gained 400,000 views in our first couple months in total or whatever it was, right? And so it worked out well for me and I was able to continue doing some of this work on top of obviously excelling in the expe expected activities that I had for my customer engineering day job, right? You can't just do that and not and let it deteriorate your day-to-day -day performance. So I will say like you need to hit your minimum expectations primary metrics right right 
So from there, I got more opportunities that were higher visibility in the company, like being the broadcast host for Next, which is our annual conference. So I was able to host Next along with other things. Um, and through that, I interviewed the director of DevRel. I didn't schedule that interview, it just happened. And he had mentioned to me that my current manager in DevRel was actually looking to start a team that was dedicated to creating online scalable content, like videos, articles, podcasts, tutorials. So he was like, you should go talk to him. Um, so a few weeks later, my manager reached out to me and said, hey, you know, the director told me to reach out to you. And he said, you might be interested. Um, and so I was very hesitant and intimidated by DevRel for the reasons I said, but he mentioned that it was a really good opportunity. You can always learn more technical skills on the job, but he was looking for someone who was passionate about technical content creation because you can't learn passion. I mean, you can if you put more effort into it, but he wanted someone who already had that passion. It's easier to do th that than find the most advanced suite and try to force them to do content creation. So that was his rationale for it. And like I said earlier, that was when I came back to this lesson of looking for opportunities that excite yet challenge you. Because at the time, I was also considering a different role in customer engineering that would be a higher position and a more one-to-one -one relationship. I would have been in a pod for customer engineering and responsible for a territory. So I think that was more responsibility. But it didn't really give me that same amount of ex nervous excitement as the DevRel position did. And so I ended up choosing that. And that was what jumpstarted my career in a totally different direction than I ever expected. I think one of the fascinating things that you talked about there was the fact that you just did it, right? It's like, hey, I'm interested in doing this thing. Nobody's asking me to do it. However, I will just do it and run around, you know, guerrilla style. Like there's no way that it's going to be great at the beginning. And I think that we've talked about that as this kind of standard pattern that you can't be afraid that it's it's going to be imperfect at the beginning. You have to be free of that because it definitely will be imperfect, right? I, I've even put it more strongly, you know, don't be afraid that you'll be bad the first time you do something because you definitely will be, right? Yes, and that's that's so true. Like that's a principle we talk about all the time on my current team and we call it the first pancake principle. Meaning when you create your first pancake, it's usually a total disaster, right? Like the griddle's too hot, you forget to flip it, and then the whole thing's burnt. And it's like, this happens to everyone, right? But you need to just be okay with it. You trip over yourself, and it's the, the bare act of iterating and doing it that makes you better. So don't get your, in front of yourself. Just do it because you want to, and it's fun, and you have some sort of curiosity and interest in it, and the rest will fall into place like it did for me. Like. The, all of this was unexpected, but because I kept saying yes to the things that were interesting to me, like content creation, things just started coming to me. And the way I see it is that luck is when hard work meets opportunity, right? The, the effort you put into some area and an opportunity will come your way. That's what luck is at the end of the day. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, maybe another analogy that, you know, we could talk about. You mentioned that, you know, one of your hobbies was hip hop dance. One of my hobbies is swing dancing. You know, I never got into hip hop, like swing dancing is more partner focused. But one of the things that we would always talk about is the myth of the natural dancer, right? That person is just naturally good at it. And the thing that we'd always say is, no, 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 that person was just bad at it when you weren't around to watch, 
Right? Yeah. You know, I had teachers, uh, you know, in like tap, I think, you know, and I, I had a, somebody talk about being a professional tap dancer. And I was like, do you remember being bad at tap? And she said, no, like the, I had my first tap dance lesson when I was three, you know, so it's actually like before I was forming memories. Right. And so that in tech, we don't have that opportunity usually to like, you know, do a technical thing when we're three years old, but in entertainment, you know, people do. So there's a lesson there, right? Just be willing to be bad at something, you know, if you're interested in doing it, because the earlier you're bad, the sooner you'll be good. And the the reason you saw me starting to laugh, even though I was muted, is because I knew he was going to bring up swing dancing. As soon as you mentioned <laughs> that you, you know, were a hip hop dancer at the beginning, I'm like, I'm waiting for him to, to inject the swing dancing reference. And that was the time. The question was the over under, right? Yeah, and yeah. I lasted 50 something minutes. Exactly. <laughs> On a serious note, though, I, I love your craftsmanship approach to the to the content creation of the gate john all i can think about is episode 19 and dreaming in bands and in my mind i'm thinking is this beyond dreaming in bands oh interesting uh i was thinking about dreaming in bands too but what do you mean by beyond dreaming in bands okay if i'm dreaming in bands it doesn't mean i'm thinking about the beatles when i go to sleep it means that i'm targeting more than just one company in my technology career and making sure that if if they say no, all isn't lost. But what was interesting about Stephanie's story is that it seemed to me that she kind of was already dreaming in bands a little bit because she knew that her options were probably open enough based on the experience at Oracle. But the but the saying no after pursuing something so intently with so much focus, I just don't think that is something many people would do. Yeah, I found that fascinating as well. And I think I said this during the episode, but I think that that is a result of what we kind of think about when we say dreaming in bands, right? When we said dreaming in bands, we envision the type of work that we want to do, the people, and then we go out and find, you know, not just one company and one dream job, right? But multiple, you know, types of work because we just, can't know everything that's out there you can't dream of a job that you doesn't you don't know exists so you just have to kind of have that idea about you know what the ultimate job could be and the type of work it could involve what was interesting about stephanie's story was that she had initially applied for just like you know any job like even i think she said even receptionist just to get in yep. and say okay then make a pivot afterwards but then later on, as she matured into her role and the types of things that she knew she wanted to do, she was also more mature in what she knew she didn't want to do. So having that pure sales role was, not, was outside of the band, even though it was in the correct company. 
So she had the maturity and discipline to say no to the job offer. Probably, and I, I just read into this a little bit, like probably thinking, well, I could do that job and it's adjacent to what I want to do, but I'd, I wouldn't ultimately be that happy doing that job. And, and I think that that was fascinating to hear like, Hey, you know, here's this company that I've wanted to get into and they're making me a job offer and I'm going to say no. Yeah. And when people, other people are telling you, you should say yes, that, Oh, it's a great company. It's a no brainer. You should definitely say yes. Mm -hmm. That I think that makes yet another factor that is hard to overcome. Yeah. Discipline, discipline and maturity. That is what I heard about that decision. And it just takes, you know, time and, and experience and, and introspection to get to that point. So this is disciplined and mature dreaming in bands. Sure. Yeah. You might even call it iteratively dreaming in bands. There you go. What did you think about the internships? Cause you mentioned that in the intro and I was wondering, uh, having, you know, listened to the episode again, what, what your, uh, thoughts on those those internships and, and the effect were. It just makes me think back to Patrick Lencioni, Three Signs of a Miserable Job, and if you can't see the impact of your work, then you might not be happy in what you do. And the, the social media analytics and exploring patterns of people's behavior based on what's really happening online somewhere, mm-hmm. I think that makes the work you do more real, more visible, and as a result, more impactful to you as the person doing the thing. So being directly directly involved in something that should done that, like that internship exploring. Yeah, I, th- I found that fascinating. I, I think it kind of feeds into, I think, what you were hinting at, which was kind of also the, the combination of her backgrounds and interests, like, you know, being that like realization in developer relations. Most definitely. And the yeah. intersection of things I'm interested in and what I'm actually doing. Yeah. I it just, I wondered, you know, and, and we might have to ask her again, like whether some of those internships and, you know, being around like video production and, and that type of thing in the entertainment industry, like, you know, helped her when she, you know, turned around and did those, those first, like, you know, explainer videos, you know, the kind of gorilla style. <laughs> Probably had some influence. Speaking of which, I th- I found that just that story to be super fascinating about like, you know, just doing the thing, like knowing that it's, it's not necessarily going to be great. And I think, I think she mentioned that, that idea a little bit. And I really, I just really loved like hearing the story about the, the gorilla video making. <laughs> Anything else uh, grab you about that episode? I just want to know if we've shattered the idea that there's a traditional path into technology jobs yet. It was interesting to hear her say it so often. You know, I don't have the traditional background. I don't have the traditional background. And I think she even said a couple of times, you know, I didn't, I didn't have like a computer science degree. And I was thinking to myself, like of all the people that I've met in pre-sales, for example, I don't know that 
any of them have computer science degrees. Maybe in developer relations, you know, and developer advocacy, that's a little bit more common, you know, because you are interfacing directly with developers and it helps to have a development background. But yeah, like traditional, traditional path, right? Like even being a developer, like getting a, a computer science degree is some people are starting to talk about that as this like gateway thing, right? It's like a gatekeeping, I guess, is probably the, the better way to put it is the word that I was actually thinking of. And it's, and it's keeping out people who can't afford to go to college and, you know, spend, you know, sometimes like $60,000 a year to get a degree when, you know, maybe going to like a developer boot camp and doing some projects, you know, is like a better, you know, more honest entry, you know, more like the, uh, the apprentice models. Like, listen, I've done enough to become an apprentice. Like, so hire me as an apprentice and see if I can work my way up to journeyman, you know, and then see if I can work my way up to mastery. Because honestly, even coming out of college, you're not hiring people like expecting them to be like master developers. You know, nobody does that. No, not at all. All right. That's enough of my rant. <laughs> Do you want to, uh, any, you have any other thoughts before we get out of here? I would just add that this reminds me of Manny Sadu telling people to try and catch a technology wave when Stephanie seemed like she caught the transition to cloud technologies at Oracle. And that really Mm -hmm. gave a massive boost to where she was able to go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. All right. Let's, uh, let's get out of here and let people like anticipate the next episode, which I am super excited for them to hear yeah what will we talk about in part two well we're not going to tell you just a reminder that we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening we want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder think about that cliffhanger there's a question we're collectively on twitter at nerd journey all right farewell listeners tune in next time as the journey continues i'm john white at v journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.